so thank you all. I've been here every night since I've been here to see something going on and it's a really beautiful place so it's, it's great to get to speak to you and, and read to you from this podium. And uh, thanks to everybody for being so welcoming and generous about everything. So I'm going to uh, read, first of all, a, a kind of odd prose piece that I wrote just a couple, uh, a couple weeks ago. And um, it's not poetry, it's a piece of prose that I feel like reading. And um, then I'm going to read maybe one or two new poems. And then I'm going to read from the, this book, which I love the cover for. <laughs> Like, is that not a good cover? You know, when you read, you get to always be have holding a poster up of your work. You know, it's pretty pretty great. So, um, I I have been having a kind of good time um, doing what I am not supposed to do when I write. Usually, you know, how you tell yourself when you're making anything. Oh, should I do that? Or one of the things we compliment each other with a lot is, I can't believe you got away with that. You know? And um, I think that I've, I've been playing with doing more of that than I normally do, so anything I do wrong is on purpose. <laughs> okay, so this is called uh, Bourgeois, Holistic, Pragmatic, Esoteric Caveats. Imagination, your imagination, is anything but something neutral or necessarily always positive in any overall sort of way. Your imagination will, on its own, with a will of its own, because it can, imagine such things as you might wish you've never been shown. Because in a way, that's what one's imagination is up to. It is showing you things. It's bringing to your consciousness your fondest and your most frightening prospects. I love what are known as false doors. These are carved into the walls of tombs, for instance. And what's fantastic about a false door is that there is only one way through a false door. And you can imagine what that is. It's by the means of your imagination only. And your imagination gets you through the false door and it stands there in front of you, beckoning you and teasing you and enticing you and at the same time forbidding you and daring you and dumbfounding you. The false door stands on the wall of a tomb on the place where one passes in order to go on to a life after living, to go on to a next step, a continuation. The false door says, innocently, in its still silence, it says, come on in. And then it says, oops, not so fast. It stops you in your tracks and it says, hmm, maybe there's another way to pass through me. Meanwhile, all you can do is picture yourself passing through the false door's rock-solid face. And this is why I love it. If the only way through it, well, technically one could blast one's way through it, but that would be destroying it and not dealing with it, and that doesn't seem fair. One way is imagining one's way through it. If the false door's character is to invite one's imagination through, then I love the false door. 
Brilliant were the artisans who dreamed up false doors. There should be many more of them around. In a different key, we dreamed up the figures we call zombies. The walking dead, the living dead, the dead who won't stay down. We dream them up and terrorize ourselves with them. They're figures of taunting, teasing, too. They emerge sort of the way we crave a sighting of those big red eyes and those crisp bronze faces of those recently roost-sucking long underground locusts that we were supposed to see a lot of, but maybe we didn't. <laughs> they, the living dead I mean, emerge pretending they are living when we know they are not. They pretend they can act as if they are alive. They play like. They impersonate. They are imposters of the most dangerous kind. They stand in front of us as stand-ins for ourselves. The we will be when we die, but not quite. Not all the way. Imagination dreams up a zombie as a way of saying to us, look at your sad little imagination always wanting to be alive anyway after it's been certified. Nope, no longer, no more, yes, you are officially dead. Dead and gone. Dead and, but wait, says the zombie, wait just a minute. What if, what if, what if, what if you can be dead and also be alive? The ultimate ultra-extreme oxymoron, you moron, it says, you are so grossly pathetic you let your imagination dream this up. And it frightens you, and you like to be frightened to a certain extent, to a somewhat hair-raising, chill-inducing level of frenzy. Not so fast, and your typical zombie is never very fast. You've seen them sway in slow motion, side to side, a little slow, a little unsure on their feet. It's not easy learning to walk again, to learn to be the walking dead. How can I not entertain? And I guess that is a fairly accurate telling of what I'm doing. I'm entertaining the picture of a zombie walking through a false door. That's fairly accurate. That's layering. That's appropriate to our times and our age and our circumstances. For over a decade now, we've lived with explicitly, lived with, what do we look like, if not zombies, when we stand in line with our shoes off and our shapes shaken down at the airports? What are we not supposed to be afraid of? Who are we not supposed to suspect? How do we change when we live in a world where when we seek to board public transportation and we seek transport, we seek to cross over through portals and adventure through new worlds, and when we're waiting to board, all we hear is a loop of a fellow human being saying, if you see something, say something, over and over again. Of course our culture is having a love affair with zombies. It seems so natural, so right for our times. All right, there was that. So, thank you. That was very indulgent of me to get to write about zombies. I think I'm going to write about them some more. <laughs> okay, um, so this poem is a, a new poem. It's called Capitalism. It makes me feel about as low as ASAP makes me feel. There are so many types of us coming in various versions of ourselves. There is, for instance, one type 
whose bold sense of entitlement is bolstered by an unquestioned innate sense of righteousness. This makes for a heady combination. Therefore, this mode calls for constant comparison, something sometimes useful, other times blindingly obliterating, to beauty, grace, love, empathy, sympathy, insight, courage, insight, courage, humor, love, grace, humor, love, wit, foresight, generosity, love, humor, truth, empathy, grace, sympathy, empathy, sincerity, grace, truth, beauty, wit, courage, adventuresomeness, surprise, love, humor, truth, empathy, grace, sympathy, empathy, sincerity, grace, truth, beauty, wit, courage, adventuresomeness, withholding, judgment, love, humor, empathy, recklessness, generosity, love, humor, despair, understanding, love, humor, empathy, recklessness, love, humor, despair, humor, joy, sympathy, love, kindness, courage. <laughs> okay. Um, I guess this is is, this goes along with the zombies pretty well. It's called the psychological impact of seeing the impossible happen. You can see how their hair is slowly sucking their brains out of their skulls. I don't know who they are or from what location these friendly zombies come. Hark, you get to say every so often along with for the love of. Give yourself the advantage you should be aware of. Right over there, no there. As in when you're in the room, when someone notices how an eclipse offers us an opportunity to think twice. Or when you are given notice, you are no longer needed at the scene of an accident. And um, so I, I want to read from this book now. And um, I, I'm going to say a little bit about it that I, I don't I was telling some people earlier that I don't talk that much as I'm talking tonight but those of you who were showing your work to, to us were talking about what you were doing and so I felt like I should have a um, maybe not should but I had a, a chance to talk and it was going to be okay I hoped so um, so th th this, this this book is um, got a, a you in every poem in it and I, it's, I'm addressing a you throughout the whole book. And when I wrote the book, I had experienced um, the loss of a loved one, the loss of family, the loss of a place, the loss of some animals. I had, lo I had lost many, many things in my life that I was grieving about. And so I was trying to find ways both to talk about grieving, but also not to be defeated by it. So, like, there's one poem in the book called Preemptive Grieving, which made me, I, I liked the title partly because I liked the idea that, well, if you're feeling really bad one day and you're feeling like you have, you know, you really feel awful and you're depressed and things are bad, you might as well call it grieving because there'll be grieving to do, so you can count that as part of it. Even though you don't quite know what you do, what you do, you know that's practical. 
you know. <laughs> so I was, I was trying to, and I, I was trying to find ways to address the you who was missing from everything in this. So whether it was a place or an animal or a person, whatever, the you was always, you know, where are you? Are you hiding? You know, come back. You know, or I'd try to f- entice them back, or I'd do all kinds of things. Not just grieve in the a, a way we think of that in the most obvious way. So um, this, with this, the whole book was like this, and I I fell into writing them all into fourteen line sets of lines, and I count it as a whole book. That kind of I can read it in any order, and I'll jump around tonight when I read from it. Um, and I lo- got to love writing in the form I had picked, a very, you know, really simple form. All it was was how many, I could not go past the 14 lines. But it got very exciting to me the more and more and more I wrote. I probably wrote about three times as many as finally wound up in this book. And um, as I had written enough of them, it became very obvious to me that I could see the end coming in every poem I was writing. When I'd get to around line 9 or line 10 or 11, I'd go, oh shit, I have to get out of this poem soon. <laughs> you know, I better do something. You know, and so I couldn't, you know, if you have a poem, and I have written many poems that can go on forever, you don't have that feeling. You don't have that scary deadline feeling that's saying to you, this is going to be it. And of course, because you made the rule, Nobody else is holding a gun to your head saying you can't do this. It feels even better because it's, it's a choice that you're making that, that feels inevitable and feels like you must do it, but it doesn't feel as though the world's going to end if you don't. So I'm going to read from this for a while. Um, this is called Not a Verbal Equivalent. You said one thing as a way of not saying something else. You wrote something so that other things wouldn't be written. You drew me a picture of one thing and not anything else. I'm trying to figure out how this applies to what you've gone and done in case by doing so a solution to the problem we've been having no success solving makes itself evident. For the sake of argument, Let's say I'm a crime and you're a clue and someone else, we don't know who, is the detective. We're on the Wind River and it's twilight and you have on your windbreaker of many pockets and I have on my boots in which I hide whatever needs to be hidden. To be perfectly accurate, you are barefoot and I have nothing to hide at the moment. Wild geese Two butterflies of black and blue geometry, a coal train, skid marks on the curve in the road that will point us slowly into a nearby cave. Where do you stand on God? Everywhere we stand on God, we stand on God. Everywhere whether we're lying down on a riverbed or racing up a rat-infested alley or sailing unstrangely at an altitude of 30,000 feet or sitting on a steel chair in a room otherwise bare and bashful or digging a hole in a field in order to salvage something. We think need salvaging 
everywhere otherwise we would be paltry people with little stingy imaginations or else we would be the living dead or the dying living or we would be stupefied or petrified or preconditioned to be loathsome of our inabilities to expand on something that is a simple matter of exploding variables of which we are the oars and the oarsmen and the anvil and we are the boat and the water it rides on and we are upheavaled, tilted texts of sacred recipes and the taps that tingle. This is needle threader in need of a needle. Tincture of morphine, tincture of so forth, blue hazarding. Before you open the door, I shut the windows and rolled up the rugs. I shook sheets over everything that didn't move. Down in the valley, the boys are playing their guitars. Music to the ears of the mice in their walls. Far unfurls the snake's skin left on the wall. What do you hear when you're home with your dog? The day is silver, the wind insistent. Who's not here is who's kept in mind. How does one move more than one would suppose? To the fair where sheep sleep in their straw beds after a scare of sirens and fires. Look at the water looking at us with desire. More than a rosary of curries, less than a beefsteak cross. You put two and two together and you came out crushed. Who covered all their mirrors with sheets while they grieved? Who wove together hair bracelets for themselves to wear? Nearby, a llama was stepping into its pajamas. We traveled by night in a ship made of ebony splinters. We watched an octopus pretending to be sleeping. It was watching us pretending we weren't noticing. Our walls were to our windows, but our minds were to our mouths. In the distance, ivory glowed across the horizon, as if a supernatural light source were being tested. You were perhaps the one in charge of this document, so I cut my finger for you to surprise you. In the distance, tingled arcs of red-tipped monolithic bee storms. I saw you duck behind the trunk of a cypress. I saw you corner and quarter and replace yourself with a turnstile. Much makes you miss your velocity and endurance. I have a little pocketful of your steadfast resolution. In the distance are horses convening. As snow falls on them is as you fall on us. And we stand here as though we were taking it. Um, this is called stainless steel spiders. This disguise you've adopted has its advantages while you wall away your forsaken transcriptions. You forbear your way back into shadow-struck corners with a knack and a bucket and a stick and a scarf. You sweep by with your black broom, busy finding. You hide and you test and you spin and you shift. This is not how we remember your history and how you under a table, a chair, go exploring without us. There aren't enough disguises forever to hide you. 
Another in plain view, you blaze at us, daring. Now you are nothing more than a moon-sheltering black cloud of falling birds we are gathering. We hold these birds in our fretful keeping. So uh, a, 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 a canoe ride is a, a fossil. And this is called Restoration of an Individual Canoe Ride. If you were not a socket wrench and I were a lug nut, radio physics would need to be revised to radiate our conundrum or else stalks would stop bending and leaves would slice us to bits. When I denigrated the cherry pitter, I felt ashamed later. No more pictures of me. No more mirrors. We need to look elsewhere. We'll have to go where owls stick their heads up their sleeves. If you were an obsolete satellite and I were a drop of water, just about done condensing on the ceiling of a tunnel in a salt mine, someone kind would tell us lies we could live with. Satin spar for you, for your eyelids. The more specific it is, the more difficult it becomes. That is, to understand an appliance's virtuosity. Say you're particularly lovely today, little penknife. Big backhoe, we couldn't live without you. There's a school in another universe where everything's been sorted and labeled. One big laboratory for our next little gods, next big thought. Um, this is called Blind Eyes in No Man's Land. You are much like a rubber tombstone in a hailstorm, somewhat like on a porcelain tabletop, one long black hair moving of its own accord, a little like jasmine tea spread over the galaxy into a midnight's dawning. Pieces of you are not at all like a mountain of rice or sand in a ruined sandbox. Your shadow disobeys the sun's orders. You are a black coat, silver lining shredded and stripped with use. In the clinking of ice and in the clinking of sticks on fire, we can sense where you are much as we sense when we're coming near a river. A book is kind because its pages let us know when we're reaching its end. You leave tracks, you leave evidence, you leave trails to tantalize and we suppose keep us wanting to find you. Do you suppose we have little else to do with our lives? We've heard your volleys and explosions rock the hills in our valley, impressed with your fine sense of composition. You're a silk tombstone nearby which a child's blowing out a match. <laughs> 